Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Welcome to episode 14 of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're discussing less a book and more a scene in a particular book. That would be the glove making, yes, glove making, scene in Philip Roth's 1997 novel, American Pastoral. And it seems about right that we focus on one scene, because to my mind, Philip Roth is a maker of scenes. He's a writer of excellent passages, definitely a writer of great beginnings to novels, but not always, in fact, in my experience, not ever, great endings. I've never finished a Philip Roth novel thinking, man, that all came together brilliantly. More often, his novels go the opposite way, bafflingly and spectacularly, which does not mean entertainingly, untethering themselves into scatterings of almost sense, nonsense, and occasionally, straight up, no guff, garbage. It's like his novels hit a certain speed, and then all at once, the wheels come flying right off. So, what about this glove-making scene? It is, in my opinion, and not only in my opinion, one of the best scenes, in fact, I think it is the best scene, that Roth has ever written. And we're going to talk about it today with Menachem Foyer, who has a personal and professional interest in the scene, as well as a larger story told in the novel American Pastoral. For most Roth aficionados, the words glove-making scene are a sufficient form of orientation. For those who are not familiar, or who misheard what I just said and conjured up thoughts of Alexander Portnoy having sex with a piece of liver in an earlier Roth novel, that's totally understandable, as Roth's works are speckled with improbable sex scenes. Septuagenarians caught in bed with lesbians? Sure. So, let me set the context. The novel American Pastoral revolves around the story of the Swede. That would be Swede Lvov, a person whose name tells much of the story already. Since when are Jews confused with Swedes? Aren't the two in opposition, perhaps even mutually exclusive? Books versus Braun, Conquerors and Victims. Swede Lvov, however, improbably, and maybe even magically, embodies both. In this regard, he is like the American dream come from the backwaters of Eastern Europe and end up like a second-rate New Englander. Now an American of long standing, the Swede has dissolved into the melting pot. Not only a physically great American specimen, which is what gives him the nickname the Swede, but also the owner of a thriving glove manufacturing business, New Made. Great for him, right? Well, it is. His beloved daughter Mary, however, completely rejects her all-American inheritance. As a young woman, she becomes a radical, and her great act in this novel is to blow up the general store in the village where her parents live, ostensibly as a protest against the Vietnam War. The bomb, however, kills a bystander, and after this, she goes underground. Swede is traumatized by the event. He didn't see it coming, and he fails afterwards to grasp why she rejected her inheritance, why she rejected him, and he is racked by pain at her disappearance. Four years on, his feelings of confusion and guilt remain. And then one day, he's at his offices at Newark Newmade, the leather glove manufacturing plant that is his family business, and a woman shows up, Rita Cohen, asking for a tour. The Swede does not know who Rita is, but there's something about her, her petite stature, 
that reminds him of his missing daughter. Normally taciturn, the Swede enthusiastically invites Rita into the factory, giving her a tour and making her a pair of gloves in the process. The context of the scene is interesting, of course. A strange father-daughter play. The history of the Lavaz family in the United States for many, many generations. But the tour of the factory, the detailed description of the glove manufacturing, that would be boring, right? Wrong. So wrong. It is the best. So let's now bring in Menachem Foyer and look into what's going on. Menachem Foyer, welcome to Burning Books. Thank you. Please introduce yourself. I am uh, Menachem Foyer. I teach at York University. I specialize in Jewish American and Holocaust literature and philosophy. And I'm especially working on the Shlemiel project. What's a Shlemiel? A Shlemiel is a Jewish fool. So there's a German Shlemiel and an Eastern European one. And German one's defined as a person who can't control the world or himself and is laughable. He's a constant bungler. It's a very endearing and laughable thing. And it's also a critique of society. So I'm very interested in how it challenges the way things are. Could you give me an example? Absolutely. Um, for instance, the beginning of the Schlemiel's modern hero, Ruth Weiss, gives a joke about a Schlemiel who was on the, the front in Austria in World War I. He's running through the woods, and an Austrian officer comes up to him, shines a light in his face, and says, Who are you? Where are you going? And he says, Don't shoot. Can't you see I'm a human being? Challenges the political philosophical status quo because... He's not anti-military, he just doesn't know how to do war. He can't change, in the sense of adapting himself to society. Larry David's like a contemporary Shlemiel, and he just can't, certain things he just can't do. And in his inability to do these things, he's saying, why are these things worthwhile doing? Exactly. So, you and I met about half a year ago in Montreal, and I think the matter of Roth spontaneously erupted. Uh, maybe this is just what happens when two people interested in American literature, one of whom professionally interested in American literature, start talking to each other. Philip Roth's name just comes up. Now, I don't know what I think of Roth's books overall. Actually, I do know what I think of Roth's books overall. I am ambivalent towards them. I never fully enjoy a Roth novel, even though they usually start extremely, extremely well. But in my recollection, I had nothing but unconditional love for this one scene in American Pastoral, the glove-making scene. And you said you knew someone who also thought it was Roth's best writing. Now, I went back and read the scene, and I was surprised. In my recollection, it was like 60 pages long. What I remembered was this extended, white-hot monologue. In fact, it's closer to 10 to 15 pages, and it still has many of the aspects I recall. It's still wonderfully vivid, and yet... On the surface, still exactly about how to make a leather glove. Swede Lvov is making this glove for Rita Cohen and describes the process step by step, and that's it. I mean, that's what you're reading. But I mentioned that scene, and you remembered it immediately. What does it say to you that a scene whose apparent content, a technical description of a lost art, is so memorable? I'm blown away because Rita Cohen in the book, when she first comes into the novel, she's so innocent and nice. She's like doing research for, I think, the University of Pennsylvania. She's at the Wharton School, as Philip Roth presents it. 
and she's doing a project on leather, the history of, of make glove making. And you see her in the beginning, and you're just like, oh, it's a nice girl, and they're, they're, the relations are so wonderful. And what's fascinating, he makes her a glove, a special glove, and he has all of his workers make a special glove. She'll, he puts so much care into making the glove for her, and, and Philip Roth takes you through the whole process. The Swede had Vicky bring a sheepskin into the office, and he gave it to the Wharton girl to feel. This has been pickled, but it hasn't been tanned, he told her. It's a hair sheepskin. Doesn't have wool like a domestic sheep, but hair. What happens to the hair, she asked him. Does it get used? Good question. The hair is used to make a carpet. Up in Amsterdam, New York, Bigelow, Mohawk. But the primary value is the skins. The hair is a byproduct, and how you get the hair off the skin and the rest of it is another story entirely. Before synthetics came along, the hair mostly went into cheap carpets. But there's a company that brokered all the hair from the tanneries to the carpet makers. But you don't want to go into that, he said, observing how before they'd even really begun, she'd filled with notes the top sheet of a fresh yellow legal pad. Though if you do, he added, touched by and attracted by her thoroughness, because I suppose it does all sort of tie together, I could send you to talk to those people. I think the family is still around. It's a niche that not that many people know about. It's interesting. It's all interesting. You've settled on an interesting subject, young lady. I think I have, she said, warmly smiling over at him. Anyway, this skin. He'd taken it back from her and was stroking it with the side of a thumb as you might stroke the cat to get the purr going. It's called a cabretta in the industry's terminology. Small sheep, little sheep. They only live 20 or 30 degrees north and south of the equator. They're sort of on a semi-wild grazing basis. Families in an African village will each own four or five sheep, and they'll all be flocked together and put out in the bush. What you were holding in your hand isn't raw anymore. We buy them in what's called the pickled stage. The hair's been removed, and the pre-processing has been done to preserve them to get here. We used to bring them in raw, huge bales tied with rope and so on, skins just dried in the air. I actually have a ship's manifest. It's somewhere here. I can find it for you if you want to see it. A copy of a ship's manifest from 1790, in which skins were landed in Boston, similar to what we were bringing in up to last year. It could have been his father talking to her. For all he knew, every word of every sentence uttered by him he had heard from his father's mouth before he'd finished grade school, and then two or three thousand times again during the decades they'd run the business together. Trade talk was a tradition in glove families, going back hundreds of years. In the best of them, the father passed the secrets on to the son along with the history and all the lore. It was true in the tanneries, where the tanning process is like cooking, and the recipes are handed down from the father to the son, and it was true in the glove shops, and it was true on the cutting room floor. The old Italian cutters would train their sons and no one else, and those sons accepted the tutorial from their fathers, as he had accepted the tutorial from his. Beginning when he was a kid of five and extending into his maturity, the father as the authority was unopposed. Accepting his authority was one and the same with extracting from him the wisdom that had made Newark made manufacturer of the country's best ladies' glove. The fascinating thing about all of this for me is is that after this, the next time you see Rita Cohen, she becomes totally uh, ambivalent and angry. She starts turning on him. So when you think of the scene, you think of the relationship between the Swede and Rita Cohen. Exactly. When they meet again, it's just totally... Uh, the opposite type of approach, totally aggressive and even comical. What fascinates me is that she becomes very sexualized with him. She meets him in a hotel room and she says, if you want to meet your daughter, you have to meet me with a briefcase full of money. And at the end of that scene, she reveals that she has a relationship to Mary. And it's very wild because Philip Roth uses a comic medium to convey the sexuality 
her makeup doesn't match. She's overdressed. She's like a, a girl woman. You know, like you have a shlemiel as a, a man child, right? So she is kind of like a shlemiel, a sexual shlemiel, so to speak. Okay. For me, when I reread the scene, I saw that, yes, this is about glove making, a word I am not going to get sick of using. But it's also about the history of the United States through the eyes of its immigrants. It's a concentrated expression of the American dream. In that passage, there are at least two sides. On one side, there's the Swede who thinks of his business as a paradise for all who enter. Right. Capitalist American paradise. Yes. For Rita, you get the sense later on that she thought the whole thing was a farce, the delusion of those who benefit from the system, as she would probably put it. What I find particularly interesting is where Philip Roth's sympathies lie between these two characters, because it's not entirely evident in the scene or in the book as a whole. For instance, when he is describing Harry... Harry can cut a glove as good as any of them. Harry... The master stood directly beside the Swede, indifferent to his boss's words, and doing his work. He's only been 41 years with Newark made, but he works at it. The cutter has to visualize how the skin is going to realize itself into the maximum number of gloves. Then he has to cut it. Takes great skill to cut a glove, right? Table cutting is an art. No two skins are alike. The skins all come in different, according to each animal's diet and age, every one different as far as stretchability goes, and the skill involved in making every glove come out like the other is amazing. When I first came into the business and my father sent me up here to learn how to cut, all I did was stand right here at the cutting table and watch this guy. I learned this business in the old-fashioned way, from the ground up. My father started me literally sweeping the floors, went through every single department, getting a feel for each operation and why it was being done. From Harry I learned how to cut a glove. I wouldn't say I was a proficient glove cutter. If I cut two, three pairs a day, it was a lot. But I learned the rudimentary principles. Right, Harry? A demanding teacher, this fellow. When he shows you how to do something, he goes all the way. Learning from Harry almost made me yearn for my old man. First day I came up here, Harry set me straight. He told me that down where he lived, boys would come to his door and say, Could you teach me to be a glove cutter? And he would tell them, You've got to pay me 15000 first, because that's how much time and leather you're going to destroy till you get to the point where you can make the minimum wage. I watched him for two full months before he let me anywhere near a hide. An average table cutter will cut three, three and a half dozen a day. A good, fast table cutter will cut five dozen a day. Harry was cutting five and a half dozen a day. You think I'm good, he told me? You should have seen my dad. Swede uses the term the master to address this impoverished glove cutter. And, and the term stinks. Yeah. Uh, it stings. In fact, a lot of the scene is a sting on Swede in the sense that it hurts to see him, this icon, the hero of the book, so blind. But it's also a sting in that, that he's also being set up. Now, let me ask you this. Why is it that this scene, which is so concerned with techniques of glove cutting and sewing, yeah. which is something we know nothing about, yeah. which uses terms we've never heard before, right? Why do you think this description of making something is so gripping? I think it's a very that's a very good question. I really think it has to do with I think Roth's understanding of detail, you know, the micro detail about how intricate the process is, how in depth the process is. It's very compelling. He's like loving gloves. He's loving the creation of it as he's writing it. And this scholar that I was talking to, he he told me he said this is one of the best scenes he's ever read in American literature. And I was like, wow. He said, yeah, because the love that goes into the, the process of the 
of making the glove and you know, the production of the glove and what the glove gives, the thing gives back to Sweden, to his family, his hope and all the details. It's like some kind of rapture involved in that. And his beauty, he called it beauty. The scholar called it as a kind of beauty. It's an American beauty that goes into like the details of the glove making. You feel like you're carefully being fitted. This product is, is made for you. For the, this is what we've created as Jewish immigrants. That this is our gift to America is the glove. That's how I read it in a literary sense. In that description, as you stated, so much love goes into this writing that for all the sourness in how Roth presents the quality of Swede's life as compared to the presumed quality of life of Swede's workers, love would seem to come out on top. That's the lasting experience of reading the scene, even if on reread, Roth's attitude to glove-making enterprise and what it represents is more complicated. That's right. This makes it ambivalence. That's what I like about Zuckerman, the narrator of American Pastoral, is brilliant because he doesn't always weigh in judgment. You can see he's struggling with these differences, which makes it so rich. It's really a novel that is honestly questioning the author's ideas, and it's trying to it's trying to sort through things rather than simplify them. And how often can you say that? It's, it's, it's beautiful. Something you said that I found striking was that in this book, the glove is the Jewish gift to America. Now, Roth could have made that gift anything. The breaker point? Like splints, fishing nets, but it was a glove. So why the glove? I thought about this, and I've, I have a few ideas. I think the glove is really important because it's the hand. You know, hand is a symbol of action. You know, you think of Heidegger and Derrida, all this stuff. I never think of Heidegger. Okay. <laughs> Bobby Derrida has a whole discourse on the hand in challenging Heidegger. What does Derrida say? The hand is connected with action. With, you know, in America, you know, getting things done and covering the hand, the gloving the hand is like now a luxury. Now instead of just work, and it's a kind of concealment. You're concealing that the essence of like American America is hard work. You know, is the hand. But, so I've been thinking there's a kind of concealment going on, and I think this is like in this in this novel, the cover up. What's being covered up? In, like a Swede. Swede becomes American. He thinks of himself as Johnny Appleseed, according to Philip Roth. It's a very interesting passage where he talks about Swede's vision of himself as Johnny Appleseed because Johnny Appleseed has no history or tradition. He's just natural. No, no. You know whom he really felt like? He couldn't tell anybody, of course. He was 26 and a new father, and people would have laughed at the childishness of it. He laughed at it himself. It was one of those kid things you keep in your mind no matter how old you get. But whom he felt like out in Old Rimrock was Johnny Appleseed. Johnny Appleseed, that's the man for me. Wasn't a Jew, wasn't an Irish Catholic, wasn't a Protestant Christian. Nope, Johnny Appleseed was just a happy American. Big, ruddy, happy. No brains probably, but didn't need him. A great walker was all Johnny Appleseed needed to be. All physical joy. Had a big stride and a bag of seeds and a huge spontaneous affection for the landscape. And everywhere he went, he scattered the seeds. What a story that was. Going everywhere, walking everywhere. The Swede had loved that story all his life. Who wrote it? Nobody as far as he could remember. They'd just studied it in grade school. Johnny Appleseed, out there everywhere planting apple trees. That bag of seeds. I love that bag. But maybe it was his hat. Did he keep the seeds in his hat? Didn't matter. Who told him to do it? Mary asked him when she got old enough for bedtime stories. Who told him? Nobody told him, sweetheart. You don't have to tell Johnny Appleseed to plant trees. He just takes it on himself. Who was his wife? Dawn. Dawn Appleseed. 
That's who his wife is. Does he have a child? Sure he has a child. And you know what her name is? What? Mary Appleseed. Does she plant apple seeds in a hat? Sure she does. She doesn't plant them in the hat, honey. She stores them in the hat, and then she throws them. Far as she can, she casts them out. And everywhere she throws the seed, wherever it lands on the ground, do you know what happens? What? An apple tree grows up, right there. And every time he walked into old Rimrock Village, he could not restrain himself. First thing on the weekend, he pulled on his boots and walked the five hilly miles into the village, and the five hilly miles back, early in the morning, walked all that way just to get the Saturday paper, and he could not help himself. He thought, Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> and it's interesting, I gave a talk at the New School recently, and I was talking about Hannah Rent's criticism of Rachel Vernhagen, the famous you know, Jewish woman who ran a salon in, uh, in Germany in the late uh, late 18th century. And one of the things that Hannah Arendt says about Varnhagen is that she was detached from history and she was just pure experience. She left the ghetto and she had no connection with Jewish tradition and she was just trying to assimilate and she had no way of doing it. So she was caught in the middle. And she describes her as just being a, a person of sheer experience and having no history or tradition. And Hannah Arendt's descriptions of this are so negative incredibly negative. It's like, you need to have a tradition, you need to have a history. And I find it interesting because Philip Roth depicts Swede in this way, even though the glove-making passage shows that there's a history and there's a tradition. Well, you're talking about the difference between Europe and the North American attitude, or at least the North American attitude from the 70s onwards. In Europe, it's suspicious not to have roots in the place where, you're, where you live. And when I consider that line of thinking, I can only see it as having a nefarious undertone. Actually, an overtone. It's just plain nefarious. The rootless person in this view is a suspicious person. Here, though, in American pastoral, the Jew, Sweet Lavov, aspires to be a rootless person. Rimrock, old Rimrock, is not his tradition. He moves to a house in his father, which is really interesting. His father lives in Newark, and he can't understand why his son would move out to a wasp white Anglo-Saxon Protestant area, which is traditionally, you know, Republican, he says, and they're very, uh, there's a Ku Klux Klan in the area. He's like, his father doesn't get, what the hell are you moving out there for? You're detaching yourself from your roots, immigrant roots, and you're, you're attaching yourself to a tradition that has nothing to do with you and could care less about you. Now, speaking of tradition, your tradition, in this case, I want to take a step back to the first time I heard you speak about American pastoral. I had read Roth's novels. I'd read this novel. This novel was a lot like other Roth in that there were memorable scenes that, as always, seemed to be the case with his books. Those scenes didn't come together. The pieces didn't fit in the end. That was my predominant recollection of this novel. So I'm listening to you speak, and the first thing you say is, Sweet Lavab, that's based on a real person. And that blew me away. Now, I thought of this novel as pure fiction. Mm -hmm. Stupid me. Mm -hmm. So, tell me the history. Okay. A good friend of mine told me for so long. I mean, I read Roth as well as he was an undergraduate, and it didn't really hit me. And a good friend of mine is like, you have to read American Pastoral. And he said, but this is about a, a Glovesville, you know, it's about America, it's about your life. Because I grew up in upstate New York as son of a glove maker, and my grandfather was a glove maker. He came over from Europe. It's so similar. The stories. And I, was, I started looking at this, and I, I started reading the novel, going through it, and I thought to myself, wow, I wonder if this is based on a real person. I started really thinking about this. Is it possible, I asked, that there could be a Swede Lavab, that there could be a Jew who was an athlete and you know, excelled um, and, and was a son of a glove maker? This is my 
thought that was running through my head while I was reading the book. And I, and I started uh, doing a Google search, and then I called up some friends, and I discovered that there is actually a, a model for this, and it's David Schmuckler. David Schmuckler grew up in Gloversville, and he also lived in New York, and I was like, oh, my God, this is a missing link that's never been written about before in any Philip Roth studies. And I looked into it, and it's David Schmuckler was indeed a Jew, grew up in Gloversville, New York, where I'm from, where I grew up, and also lived in New York. And he was the star in the Gloversville football team, and he was actually, get this, this is really wild. Just last year, I was called by a friend of mine who wanted me to come to the, there's a Gloversville Hall of Fame. You know, it's hard times in upstate New York, so they're creating a Hall of Fame of Gloversville athletes. And the number one athlete in Gloversville was David Schmuckler, was a Jew. And I was like, wow, it's like, could you speak on this? I was like, I would love to. So the, the thing, though, uh, about David Schmuckler, which really got me, that really blew my mind away, is that this is a real person. It's, and it's for Philip Roth, it's unbelievable to think that a Jew could excel in athletics and do things that a non-Jew could do. It's just unthinkable for him. But it was real. And this guy went on to play for Pop Warner, the famous football coach at Temple University. David Schmuckler went from Gloversville to there, and he broke records for, the, for Temple University. And he went on from Temple University to play for the Philadelphia Eagles. And he broke records for the Eagles as well. And lo and behold, just like in the novel, he goes off to war and he left the football team. It's exactly what happened in real life as well. He's a real life character. And he left to go fight in the war. And after the war, he went to the leather business, which is exactly the same thing that happened. So this is based on a real character. And I'm convinced that Philip Roth probably went to Gloversville, New York, and did research on this guy. Probably went through Gloversville Public Library, and went through files on David Schmuckler. And Swede is indeed based on this character to some extent. You know, I'm sure David Schmuckler didn't live the same life. And what I really find interesting about this is the parallel also to Ben Catcher's book, The Jew of New York. And it was a fascinating parallel. As the Jew goes to upstate New York, he goes through a transformation. In Ben Catcher's you know, graphic novel, he becomes like an animal. He becomes like an animal, and that's what happens. And, he, and they bring him back to New York City, and they show him this is what happens to a Jew who goes to upstate New York. They become like an animal. And then I did further research, and I found out that this is actually a motif. Sal Bello wrote a short story called The System. And in The System, these New York Jews go to upstate New York, they go to the Adirondacks, and they become like animals. They become non-Jewish. They lose their Jewishness, which is somehow associated with this urban space. So I find something really interesting with this because this is what happens in Philip Roth's novel as well. I mean, Swede goes, he doesn't become an animal. He just becomes more waspy, becomes Johnny Appleseed. The motif then is if you leave the urban milieu as a Jew, you become an animal in the sense that you lose your culture, your traditions. You become naturalized or like nature. This is the case of Swede, who leaves Newark for his small town, Old Rimrock. And that's the thing about me. I was... I, this movie, Schlemiel, this documentary that was made on me by the Toronto filmmaker Chad Derrick, he, he was fascinated by this idea. He's like, you know, what happened? You're living in the country. My, my dad calls me a cosmopolitan hick because my father's a New Yorker. So I was like the first generation to actually grew up there in upstate New York. I grew up in Gloversville, New York. It was the glove-making capital of the world. At one time it said, uh, Gloversville gloves America. I mean, talk about love. Gloves. Right? Well, that's a whole other thing. I'm sure a few people are asking themselves, wait, Gloversville? That's a real place? Yeah. I think Richard Russo was from Gloversville as well. I went to my high school. So what's the place like? It's sad because what this book documents is also the fall of the leather industry. It's not just the fall of Sweet Lavog and his family. Even in the 50s, the glove industry started going to the Philippines. 
He writes this book. This is a fact, actually. I thought my father's in the leather industry, and he has all his friends. They have a breakfast club, and they all get together, and they discuss leather. They've been through the whole system. They've seen it go down the drain. And I asked them, I said, in the 50s, was leather going to the Philippines? And they said yes. And a really fascinating thing is recently a person died called Ross Heiger. comes from the Heiger family, Jules Heiger. Jules Heiger was... Um, awarded by Dewey, I think, of, of the governor at that time in the 50s. The governor said, you have done great things for America in the leather industry. He came to Gloversville, and he had this whole thing. He gave him a, a special talk honoring Jules Heiger, who was like the, had the largest glove company. And it's interesting because at that time that Dewey was saying that, my father told me that Jules Heiger was the first major leather man to send leather to the Philippines, that guy. In the 50s, who Dewey was honoring. That's when my father argues the leather industry started going downhill. But it's interesting because my father came into a multi-million dollar leather company, and he didn't ship leather to China. Everything was American-made. He wanted to keep everything in Gloversville. They employed many, many people. But the story really touched me because when I was growing up in Gloversville, I saw that industry really doing well and then going down. I went to school with people whose fathers worked in those leather mills. They were my friends. They were very blue collar, and here my father runs a leather corporation. So I saw the inside. I know they were prosperous. They did very well. They would say in Gloversville, New York, you know, things are well when the bars are open, the leather's lapping through the town, you know. You know, they have happy hour after work. And I saw that. But then I saw as in the 90s, in the 90s and, you know, right after the 2000, that whole time, the GATT Treaty that uh, Bill Clinton was worked with, right, and Republicans and Democrats came together with this GATT Treaty, the Free Trade Agreement, um, opened up the doors for, for leather to go to China and to Mexico without tariffs and whatnot, you know, with reduced tariffs. And at that point, tons of leather went over. I remember my father telling me, you can't compete with China. My dad took trips to China to try to uh, get in there. And uh, at that point, it just really went downhill. And today, it's so bad. It's, there's 25% unemployment. It's the highest unemployment in New York State is in Gloversville, New York. It's, 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 it's very sad. It's very sad. And reading this book, I was reminded of how beautiful. I grew up with my father. loved glove making. And I grew up with very similar to Swede, the way he describes the glove. And my grandfather was like his, his grandfather. But we're the first family to live in upstate New York. My grandfather lived in Manhattan. And he would commute. He would take the train into Amsterdam, New York, and from there they would have a taxi and they would go in with Jules Hydra, actually, to Gloversville. He was friends with him. He was also friends with Founds Leather Company and Grando. These were major glove makers. And uh, they lived in the city. They didn't want to leave the city. My grandfather wouldn't leave Manhattan. He's like, absolutely not. You know, Jews, Jews stay in New York. You know, my father was the first one to venture out into Gloversville. So this book really hits a very strong chord because we were the first family, so to speak, to go to Rimrock. You know, we lived outside the city. And I was like I was like the child in that experiment. But I was, did not turn into Mary, obviously. I want to now ask you a general question about this novel, what you gain from reading it. I can see that one of your main focuses is on the integration of this minority, the Jewish character, Svidlov, into the majority, America. I wanted to know if you had any further thoughts, in a more general sense, on that theme. What I like about really good literature is you have to ask the question, is this possible? Could this really be the case? You know, it can get into your... That's what I think really good literature can do. It can lodge a possibility into a mind, into our, our heads about things. That's what I like about Roth's novels, that he's lodging a possibility. For him, for a baby boomer, it's, it's a hard thing to put your head around. 
that there are Jews like this. And it, it's interesting for me because it's very close to my own experience. Well, Roth's narrator is awakened to the fact that there are Jews like Swede and that there are also Jews like Rita Cohen and Swede's daughter, Mary. Yes, that's right. Mary yes, that's possible that a Jew could become a terrorist. And this is the thing that hits his father. It's like, and him, he just can't understand. So the very end of the novel, why would she do such a thing? What? And at the very end of the novel, you're left with this question. You know what she does. You know how religiously she gets into it. But what would motivate her to do this? Do you think that the assumption with which Roth is working, and to some degree the assumption that Roth has always worked into his novels, that Jews can't be diverse, do you think that starting point is highly problematic? Yeah, it is. It's, it is. it's a very interesting question. It has to do with this idea of Jews being, you know, what do Jews do, what Jews do? You know, certain things that Jews can do and can't. Right, they're urban. Yeah. They're educated. Yes. They're professionals. Exactly. And there's an idea that they're trying to preserve all these types of things is the Jewish, all these things are associated with being Jewish. And there's a fear. I mean, I, I saw it in Ben Catcher's uh, work. I see it in Saul Bellow. I see it in Philip Roth. I see it in Bernard Malamud. There's this fear of, like, you know, leaving that. And also even uh, Bruce J. Friedman, like a novel like Stern, or even Shalom Auslander, um, Hope of Tragedy, where you have Jews moving out into the country. And the big question in his mind is, like, well, how are they going to fare? How do they get integrate? And there's always this issue. You know, it's like a horror. And you feel uncomfortable about these relations. You're worried. You actually get worried, given all the things that are happening. You're just like, oh my God, what's going to happen? But in American Pastoral, that's not the case. American Pastoral is different because Swede does relate well to his neighbors. But at the end of the novel, it's really interesting because his wife has an affair and he finds out about it, but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything to him. But he could stand up. You know he couldn't. He's Swede. But he doesn't. He doesn't say anything. And he goes to the end of the novel. That complicates the theme further because on the one hand, you begin the story with this Jewish character who is physically able to do anything. Yes. And from that, the reader understands him to have extraordinary powers in all realms. Yeah. Because if he has physical power, then he has everything. That's right. But by the end of Swede's assimilation, in a moment when he could use all these powers, he, he doesn't. And maybe he doesn't have it anymore, which is another comment on the process of assimilation of any minority into the majority. That's right. So as we close up, I wanted to ask you, what are you up to now? What's next? Okay, what I'm up to right now is I'm writing a book on the Shlemiel. The main focus of my book is on Hannah Arendt and Walter Benjamin, the tension between these two great Jewish-German thinkers about the Shlemiel, which hasn't really been talked about at all. Um, so I recently gave a talk at the New School promoting my book project they have because the two fundamental chapters of the book are based on the differences between the two, which are a, what I call a mystical interpretation of the Shlemiel, like, like a holy fool. On the part of? Of Walter Benjamin. And a political interpretation of the Shlemiel on behalf of Hannah Arendt because she believes that the Shlemiel has its place in history, like with Heinrich Heine, even Charlie Chaplin. She says they're part of a hidden tradition. She believes that Franz Kafka, and this is where she and Walter Benjamin totally disagree with each other. She believes that Franz Kafka was not a Schlemiel and did not write about Schlemiel characters. All he wanted to live, according to her, was a normal life. He just wanted to be a normal person. Whereas Walter Benjamin, his whole Franz Kafka essay is based on basically seeing him as a Schlemiel. Walter Benjamin saw Kafka as a failure. Walter Benjamin said there was only, uh, only one thing, there was only one thing that Kafka was certain of. And what a quote, what a statement. One thing. 
Okay, what's that? He says, that only a fool can help. Only a fool can help? Yeah, only a fool can help. That's what he says. What does that mean? Now, I, what I think he means by this, I think of help in terms of like salvation, in terms of saving, you know, in terms of, I think his own life, his crisis he's going through. Uh, a, a fool can help more than a philosopher. Okay, okay, I see what you mean. Okay, he's saying that Kafka abdicated philosophy and even religion in a certain way, and he turned to the fool. Now, I think Walter Benjamin believes that comedy was a sublimation of religion, that through comedy, the last traces of holiness come through the fool. I think that's an argument for the value of fiction, period. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Very welcome. So, Roth, this writer of great parts, why do I return to him? Well, because in those parts, he is untouchable. He's like Werner Herzog in that way. You tolerate the gonzo left-field errors of artistic judgment, because the good things that this artist offers in his work, those things are only available from him. There are many, many who imitate Roth, specifically the vicious parody of conventional ideas about religion, culture, identity, and race, but nobody can do what he does. Nobody can, in the space of a page or 20 pages, eviscerate so many commonly held beliefs. I thank you very much for listening, and thank Menachem Foyer for appearing on the program, bringing his beautiful New York voice to our ears. To check out more from Menachem, see his website, shlemielintheory.com. That's S-C-H-L-E-M-I-E-L, intheory.com. He is insanely productive. So he's got new stuff up all the time. Next up on Burning Books is a review of A True Novel, a Matryoshka doll of a story by the Japanese author Mine Mizumura. I like hearing from you, so please send me notes, nasty and nice, either via Twitter, at burningbookspod, or email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. And as always, go Jays. Taking you to places you haven't even dreamed about. This is Radio Litopia. A world in your ear.